mercy and peace to you from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Extol the Lord our God, worship at his footstool, holy is he. Let us pray. Gracious God, you have given us minds to know you, hearts to love you, voices to sing your praise, and you have called us here this morning by the power of your spirit and by, the, by your word to come and be to worship you and to hear your word and to adore your great glory revealed in Jesus Christ. We pray that by your spirit you would be present with us now so that we may celebrate your glory and worship you in spirit and in truth through Jesus Christ our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen. Our first hymn is number four, All Praise to God Who Reigns Above.
we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sin, God is faithful and just, and he will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Let us now confess our sin before God Almighty. Almighty God, we confess that we have sinned against you and have done evil in your sight. We have transgressed your law and neglected your word. Forgive us our sins, O Lord, for the sake of Jesus Christ, who was put to death for our trespasses. Give us the grace and power we need to put away all hurtful things. Deliver us from the bondage of sin. Enable us by your Holy Spirit to walk from this day forward in your holy ways. For we ask this through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Please stand for the assurance of pardon. Christian people, our Heavenly Father, who of his great mercy has promised forgiveness of sins to all who with hearty repentance and true faith turn to him, has mercy upon us and delivers and pardons us from all our sins. He confirms and strengthens us in all goodness, and he brings us to everlasting life through Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. I declare to you as a minister of the Lord Jesus Christ that all those who have faith in him and repent of their sin are truly forgiven of all their sin. And this is the good news of the gospel. We say together, praise be to God. Beloved people of God, the apostolic instruction is to put on, as God's chosen ones, compassion. We are to be compassionate to others because Jesus Christ is full of compassion and we have been united with him. If we are united with the one who, who is, is full of compassion, then that becomes a source for our compassion. When Jesus saw the crowds of people running after him along the shore who had nothing to eat, he had compassion on them, the scripture says. And another time when he met the widow at Nain whose son had died, Jesus had compassion on her. The compassion that we put on in Christ is a deep sensitivity to the needs and sorrows of others. Christ transforms our heart from callousness and from selfishness where we're only really concerned about our own uh, issues. Instead, he transforms it so that we now have a deep concern for others and we love them with that deep concern. Those in need may be unpleasant to us in many different ways, and yet we are to be compassionate because Christ's compassion gives us, uh, overrides our senses so that we can have that compassion for them. I think without that, we're always going to find some people we do not want to be near, we do not want to care about them. But Christ's compassion overcomes that in us. Just as Christ has been compassionate to our great need, we are to be compassionate to those in need, whatever their needs may be. For this is God's will for us in Jesus Christ, and let us say, Amen. Our hymn is number 505, I Am Not Ashamed to Own My Lord. Thank you. 
Let us pray that great honor and privilege we have that Christ has given us. Let us pray by the Holy Spirit for those in need. Heavenly Father, our gracious Savior, since we are not to pray, or not able to pray as we should, we thank you for giving us Jesus Christ to teach us to pray and intercede for us. We thank you for the Holy Spirit who helps us pray, and so now we ask that you would hear our prayers. We do pray for the universal church, that she might be the new Jerusalem prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Give to her true purity that she might be without spot or wrinkle. Give her the grace of hope and the confidence of joy as she awaits the coming of Christ, her bridegroom. Grant that she might bear witness to your kingdom and salvation in this world. To this end, here are our prayers for the church universal, but also particular churches that come to mind. As you have loved the world, we pray with love and concern for the nations that are filled with all kinds of tongues and cultures and races. We pray for the people in different lands, for Afghanis, for Mexicans and Hondurans, for the Hutu and Congo and Somali, and all the people groups in the nations of Africa. We pray for the Karamanju, with whom Charles Jackson and Angela Vascule, James Fulkert, Mark Essendelf, their families, and the other missionaries with whom they all labor. We pray that they would continue to be able to establish churches, that many more would hear the gospel and be joined in with the community of Christ's body that confess his name and serve him in this world. We pray specifically for the nations of Nigeria and Libya where there is terrible conflict and attacks on their civilians, but also on the Christians. May our nation encourage good government and order in other lands and give aid where it can. Hear our prayers for the nations in this world. We pray also for the various people in China and Taiwan, Myanmar and North Korea. Lord, let us not forget the brutality and oppression that many of these people experience at the hands of their leaders and the threats that come from some of these nations towards other nations in Asia. We ask that you would remove the cruel leaders and let us not look away or be silent or pretend that they're not there. At the same time, may the tensions of war decrease We pray that your church might work hard to proclaim the gospel in those lands and that you would bless those nations with peace and justice and righteousness. Here are our prayers for the people in Asia. For the nations of Europe, we also pray. We ask that you would stop the moral and social decay in England, France, Germany, and and other countries there. Give your church more influence in those lands. May conversions to Christ continue to happen among the refugees who have moved there. And we pray that the Christians in those nations would faithfully follow Jesus Christ. Here are prayers for the people in the church in Europe.
We pray for our own country, to which you have given great power in this world, at least for now. Even in economic trouble, we thank you that we have prosperity and many conveniences and pleasures. But Lord, keep us from temptation and spiritual laziness. Create in us a fervent spirit willing to sacrifice all that we have for you. And we pray that your church would not crumble apart into a million pieces with deteriorated worship and a gospel that's syncretized with our culture. Cleanse your church from abusive clergy and grant to your people a zeal and diligence for the word of Jesus Christ and your kingdom. Here are our prayers for the nation, the United States, and the church in this nation. And now we do pray for the members of Providence Orthodox Presbyterian Church. As we are frail, we ask you would restore us to health and strength. We remember that Jesus Christ taught us to pray, give us this day our daily bread. And so we ask for all the things we need for our lives. We pray you would bring more people and church to, uh, children to this church. We also pray for the sick and the shaken and those struggling. We pray for Leah and her family as they grieve. And for Frida, for Eduardo and Shirley, for Fawn and Bob, for Jeff and Linda. For our friends, Becky Mrs. Mesner, Bob, Angie, Karen, Tom, Phil, and others we name to you in silence. Be faithful in your grace and mercy to them. Renew their hearts, restore their bodies, give them good medical care. Because we depend upon you for all things, we ask for these things that they might need. And take care of this church, our fathers, so that we may be a testimony that even though we are weak, you are strong. Even though we are reviled, you bless us. While we may hunger and thirst and be poorly dressed and are assailed, we rejoice in your love for us in Jesus Christ. Hear now all our prayers as we make them in the power of the Holy Spirit and in the name of Jesus Christ, who taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, Hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Let us present our gifts and offerings to the Lord.
prayer for the offerings printed in the bulletin saying, Lord, we give our gifts to you with thankfulness for the magnificent gift of Jesus that you so generously gave to us. May we give to others with the same thankfulness. Please be seated. Let us pray together for the reading and the preaching of God's word. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, once again, we would ask you to quiet our minds and still our hearts, draw our attention onto your word, that in hearing it, we may be corrected, that we may be trained, that we may be assured that we may be matured in Christ, that in all ways and in all things we glorify you as our Heavenly Father. For we do pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Our first reading comes from the prophet Isaiah, chapter 53, verses 4 to 7. Listen now to God's word. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we had esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. And he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Our Psalter response comes from Psalm 27. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. You have said, Seek my face. My heart says to you, Your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help. Cast me not off, forsake me not. O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me. But the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord. Because of my enemies. Give me the will of my For false witnesses have risen against me. And they breathe out violence. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord. In the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Our epistle reading comes from Romans chapter 8, verses 1 to 8. 
Again, God's word. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Our gospel reading then comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 14, verses 53 to 65. And they led Jesus to the high priest. And all the chief priests and elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, Prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. The word of the Lord. Jesus has come to his trial in our text this morning. We're in that section of Mark that tells about Jesus' passion. Here is Mark's story of the preliminary council meeting that led to Jesus' trial. This tells us that Jesus' trial is part of his passion. The trial of Jesus is a decisive part of the gospel, and you'll hear why in a moment. And we need to understand that it is a necessary or essential part of this whole story of Jesus' passion. Now, in many ways, Jesus on trial continues in our world today. 
C.S. Lewis was an English literature professor at Oxford and a Christian defender of the faith, and a collection of his essays were bound together and given the name God in the Dock. That name's always stuck with me. I just, I've always thought it was an interesting uh, title. God in the Dock. It's taken from one of, of the title from one of his essays. The Dock comes from English legal language referring to the place where the accused stands in a trial. And perhaps you've seen this, whether you knew it was the dock or not, you've maybe seen it in a British movie. The dock in the courtroom is made of high glass walls, and there you see the person who's accused standing in the middle of it. The defendant is put inside the dock. There is growing clamor, as I looked into this on the internet, There's growing clamor in England to get rid of the dock in the courtroom because it might imply guilt before the evidence and the witnesses are called in the trial. It seems to to, uh, predispose people to think that he's already guilty. So there's talk about getting rid of the dock. There's nothing in the British legal code that says it has to be there. However, while those on trial may no longer be placed in in a dock in British courtrooms, Jesus is still put in the dock today. The obvious, obvious examples are opponents of Christianity, like the big names, Christopher Hitchens or Sam Harris, who have condemned Jesus as not being who the Gospels say he is. There's a condemnation there. There's a, re, there's a decision being made about him. Um, he's being convicted as not being true. Hitchens has said, <clears throat> Jesus is Santa Claus for adults. So there's a certain putting Jesus on trial and finding him less than what the Gospels say he is. In our world, Jesus continues to be put on trial. It can be as simple as someone testing Jesus by asking him to do something for them. And then when that doesn't happen, they convict Jesus as a fraud. So that's, that's maybe not an obvious way, but it is still putting Jesus on trial. Are you going to do this for me, Jesus, or not? And if you don't, uh, you must not be who you say you are. The more sophisticated trials of Jesus review the gospel accounts of Jesus, and they determine that these may have many contradictions and impossibilities about Jesus. Consequently, these courts, these courts that are looking at the gospels and trying to decide whether they are, are true or not, are, um, would say that the gospel accounts are unreliable and that Jesus is not who the church confesses him to be. When my son was in college, <clears throat> he dated a girl who was in a class, a literature class, and the professor there offered a, uh, the school offered a course on the Gospels, and she took this course, but it was in the literature department of the school. And the class was mostly about finding, it was all dedicated to finding inconsistencies in the New Testament stories of Jesus with the intent of exposing the Jesus of the Bible as a made-up person. The teacher was trying to convince the students to deny Jesus. So in that class, Jesus was on trial, at least as as the Gospels present him. In countless other ways, Jesus is put on trial every day in our world. For example, when Jesus is put up against science, when science comes along and and sort of, I would say, steps out of of its proper um, boundaries and decides it's going to, to declare that it can save the world, it can bring the solutions we need to be able to survive. Um, They set themselves up over and against Jesus and basically say, he's not how we're saved. We we can save you. And so science can be another way that Jesus is put on trial. Or when Jesus is condemned for perpetuating a male-dominated world or sexual repression or slavery or regression 
from modern enlightenment. In these ways, Jesus is all put on trial. And so, while Jesus' trial during his passion was a unique event for him, it had a beginning and it had an end, and it was, a very, it was very much a, a, an event that happened in the midst of his uh, way to the cross, we are caught up in the ongoing trial of Jesus in this world. And here's why. Jesus' trial is part of his passion on the way to the cross. We see that here in the gospel. Whoever follows Jesus must follow him the way of the cross and his passion. That's the route we have to go. All of the Gospels include the passion of Jesus in in the Gospel story. None of them leave it out. The passion of Jesus with his trial is intrinsic to the Gospel and, and, and following Jesus. It cannot be avoided. Thus, if we follow Jesus, which we are, we are followers of Jesus, then when Jesus is tried in this world, we will be tried with him because we are joined with him on the same journey, caught up in the same um, suffering and and, uh, the way of the cross. So what you might call it, if you want to think about it this way, is guilt by association. We're associated with Jesus, thus we're going to be condemned along with Jesus, if he's condemned. Now then, in the trial of Jesus, there is one thing more central than anything else. According to Mark, <clears throat> there was a number, there were a number of injustices at Jesus' trial. Formally speaking, it was not a trial. It was more like a preliminary inquiry. It was like an inquest. If you'll notice the very end of our reading, it says that they, um, that they judged that he deserved to be put to death. That's not the same thing as saying we are going to put you to death. So it, the whole story is, is more of a preliminary inquiry. It takes place in the courtyard of the high priest, uh, where the high priest lives. But it was not an unbiased inquiry. Mark tells us, the, tells us the chief priests, the elders, and the scribes, all members of the Sanhedrin who were there, had already resolved to put Jesus to death. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, cleansed the temple, Mark says the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him back in Mark chapter 11. So there already was this intent on their part to, they already had the verdict in mind for Jesus. They met with Jesus in order to formulate a charge to bring to Pilate. So this inquiry is more like an interrogation that was stacked against Jesus. An informal inquest like the council meeting with Jesus, so a Jewish sort of uh, meeting like this, did not, uh, did not have to follow the rules required for a trial. So an inquiry wouldn't necessarily follow all the same rules as a trial. But the Jews did have rules. They did have rules related to this kind of thing. The rules for Jewish trial at this time were probably similar to those that are record, recorded in the Mishnah, which is a second-century collection of the authoritative oral traditions of the Jews. And those traditions didn't just spring up in the second century. Um, They had already been happening, and now they were collected and put in the Talmud. So we can be fairly confident the Talmud, I mean, the uh, Mishnah gives us a fairly good idea about the uh, rules that were required for um, a trial and for this kind of inquiry. The Mishnah says that a trial on a capital charge, in other words, on a charge that would require putting someone to death, should begin with a statement of the reasons for acquittal. 
It should start with the reasons for acquittal. In other words, the trial was to begin with a presumption of innocence. Isn't that interesting? Because that's what we claim our whole judicial system is supposed to do, right? It was not to begin with reasons for conviction, convicting someone. But the informal meeting of the Sanhedrin did not start that way. It produced reasons to convict Jesus so that he could be sentenced to death. Verse 55 in our lesson says, Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. That's what they were looking for. That's what they were asking for. That's not beginning with a presumption of innocence. And so they were calling for witnesses against Jesus. They were not calling for those who would be witnesses in favor of Jesus. And that was unjust. Secondly, the council found a witness who testified that he heard Jesus say, I will destroy the temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Now, of course, if you compare this to what Jesus actually said in the Gospel of Mark, then you will know that it misrepresents what Jesus did say. In Mark 13, verse 2, Jesus said to his disciples, Do you see these great buildings? He's talking about the temple complex. There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Jesus does not say that he will throw the stones down. He only refers to the temple's destruction. Mark tells us there were many other false charges brought against Jesus. They were obviously false because they did not agree. If witnesses make statements with significant discrepancies that contradict each other, then they should be judged as inaccurate and useless in court. They should not continue to hear more and more of these things if, if there is no, uh, no uh, agreement on them. False allegations in the inquiry showed even more that the council was predisposed against Jesus. So one after another, they kept hearing these false accusations, and, um, and that's because they wanted to find something where they could get this agreement and bring this accusation against Jesus. Well, that's unjust, to continue to receive false allegations. Thirdly, G- Jewish rules for evidence in a capital case required at least two or three witnesses for an accusation to be <clears throat> accepted as credible. And this is not just in the Mishnah. Of course, the, the traditions of the Jews usually tie back to the Torah. Deuteronomy 17 says, On the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death. A person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. But Mark tells us that the witnesses did not agree. This inquiry could not come with witnesses who collaborated each other which was necessary to convict Jesus to death, and yet they proceeded anyway. It kept going on, and that's unjust. And fourthly, the high priest directly challenged Jesus, which, is also, uh, which also violated proper procedure at a trial. The mission said you weren't supposed to do that, directly challenge the accused. The priest said, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? The Blessed is a Jewish way of referring to God. He was trying to trap Jesus. And that also was unjust. In the Gospel of Mark, there was injustice in Jesus' trial. Now, injustice is a word that's reverberating in our nation. This doesn't mean that every claim of injustice really is an injustice. People throw that word around carelessly. We need to stop and consider what injustice is. Still, there is injustice in our society, and we are trying to improve how our court system handles people accused of crimes. 
DNA has done a lot to, to help that happen. Uh, sometimes we have to make amends, such as in the case of Gilbert Lee Poole, Jr., 56, who was released last year from prison in Jackson, Michigan, after an Oakland County judge vacated his 1989 murder conviction based on DNA, DNA evidence that excluded him from the scene of a fatal stabbing. So he couldn't have been there. Um, I don't know all the details, but the judge um, basically said he was wrongly convicted. He was convicted primarily on the testimony of his girlfriend at the time, who I'm sure is not his girlfriend today. <clears throat> but she, based on that one person's testimony, um, he was convicted. And so the DNA evidence exonerated him, and he's been released. That's just right here in our own county. But injustice is not just generally out in the world. There's also been much injustice committed against Christians and the church. I was talking to a visitor at our church a few weeks ago from Myanmar. And we pray for Myanmar, don't we? You know, from time to time, comes into our prayers. We've been praying for these people who right now live under a government dominated by the Buddhist majority in the country. When I hear the story, I just think, who says Buddhism is just this peaceful kind of coexistent kind of religion. Here's this, this nation that's, that's dominated by a Buddhist majority. The leaders are Buddhist, and they're persecuting the religious minorities severely. So the government inflicts great injustice on the religious minorities in the land, like the Christians. And this fellow told me the Christians in Myanmar are not even allowed to own property. And from time to time, the Christians are attacked, and many are, are arrested, and some are murdered. The Wall Street Journal reported in 2018 that the brutality against one minority of Christian people, called the Kachin people, has been especially gruesome. Some 130,000 Kachin, more than 90% of whom are all Christians, have been displaced within their state over the past six months. This is back in 2018. And then there's a quote from one of these people who describes what's happening. He says, there's been the destruction of our churches, the desecration of our sanctuaries, the looting of our offerings, and violence, including rape inside church property. There is gross injustice happening to the church and to Christians, and we pray that God would stop it. We pray for the people of Myanmar and the church in Myanmar. In our nation, it's a little more subtle most of the time, not always, but there is injustice against the Christians here as well. If you refuse to support the Human Resources Department and their initiative to affirm the LGBTQ plus movement in some large companies, not every, but in some, even if you're willing to work alongside people engaged in such practices, you might lose your job. And there's a story in the news today, uh, or this last week that I read, about a couple um, workers at the Kroger's in Arkansas that were supposed to wear an emblem that represented this movement. They refused based on their religion, and they were fired. So they brought a lawsuit. There is recourse, but nevertheless, there is a certain amount of injustice that happens to Christians as well. Injustice is wrong, it's terrible, and we must act against it. However, it's not most central in the trial of Jesus. There were also accusations made against Jesus at his meeting with the Jewish council. And Mark doesn't tell us what most of them were. He only says many people bore false witness against him. I've already mentioned the injustice of the false witness, but with false testimonies come accusations. If I were to tell you 
for some reason, some strange reason, I was up near your house at 1 a.m., or at least I claim I was up near your house at 1 a.m., and I saw your neighbor in your garage carrying out a saw. That would be, I would be accusing him in essence of stealing. So this is why witnesses are so important in building a case, credible witnesses. If you have witnesses that all agree, it starts to build the case because their testimony is very important. They contribute to the accusation against the defendant. Now Mark does tell us what one accusation was against Jesus. It's in verse 58. We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Now, it's always fair and right, as far as possible, to compare what a witness says, someone said, to what that person did say. I know I appreciate that when I get quoted or people refer to things I've said because I have a public position. So, you know, I preach, I teach, I say things, and I've learned more and more to shut up. <laughs> um, <clears throat> but if, if someone comes to me and says, you know, you said this, I, I appreciate it when they can go back and check it, you know, and see, did I really say that? It's one reason I have everything written out here. I mean, I can go back to the sermon, we have an audio recording, and I can, I can say, well, no, that's not exactly what I said, or yeah, I did say that. We do have all kinds of recording devices, we have archives, so we can make that comparison today. When it comes to what Jesus said, we must read the scriptures, And there are several places in the New Testament that refer to Jesus and the destruction of the temple. It's in Matthew, it's in Mark, it's in John, and it's in Acts. And in none of them does Jesus say he will destroy the temple, only that it will be destroyed. Nevertheless, it seems that this was a common Jewish accusation against Jesus in the first century because it comes up several times in the New Testament writings. The writers of the New Testament bring this up several times because it probably was a common Jewish accusation against Jesus. Within the Gospel of Mark, the witness's testimony of what Jesus said does not match with what Jesus did say when he was at the temple, and I've already mentioned that to you. Accusations often take what someone says and they manipulate it. So an accusation could be true, but oftentimes it's not true, and it manipulates what the person says. It's not just a complete replacement of what they said. It plays with it and changes it, and that's what the false witnesses were doing with Jesus' words. Now, there's more to this than the sacredness of the temple. The temple, of course, was this premier institution in, in uh, Judah and in Israel at the time, and the Jews all looked to it as this very sacred place, very, very important place, very sacred. But mixed up in this accusation was a messianic expectation. A common Jewish belief in the days of Jesus was that was the hope that God or his Messiah would rebuild the temple. And we can read this in some of the Jewish apocalyptic writings that were available in the first century, like First Enoch and Jubilees. There are places in there where they talk about how God would come, the Messiah would come, and the temple would be rebuilt. I'm not sure, uh, you know, that, that was at the time, be, these were written before uh, Herod's uh, rebuilding of the temple, but um, even so, the Jews expected a greater temple to be built. So what this means is the accusation against destroying the temple may have been an accusation that Jesus was claiming to be the Messiah, that he would come and build this new temple. 
And this might sound true to us because it's what we confess. Jesus is the Messiah. If you say Jesus Christ, you're saying he's the Messiah. Jesus is the Christ. What made the accusation false at the council meeting was that Jesus is not the kind of Messiah his contemporaries expected in the first century. Jesus is the Messiah who goes to the cross to die in order to save us. And Jesus would not rebuild the physical temple in Jerusalem as the place of God's holy dwelling in this world. Jesus did talk about a new temple. And that new temple that he would build would be where he is the cornerstone, the apostles the foundation, and those who are joined to him like you and me, joined to him in faith, are its stones, the living stones, as Peter talks about, the the, uh, stones of the temple. And then the Spirit of God would fill that temple. So Jesus does talk about the new temple, not just rebuilding the old one. So he's not that kind of Messiah that they were expecting. There have been many other accusations against Jesus then and now, and by implication, as I said, against us who follow Jesus. For example, some have said Jesus was a misguided, delusional visionary, and Christians are also well-intentioned but misguided. Some today accuse Jesus of being a simpleton and accuse us Christians of being simpletons. Christopher Hitchens includes Jesus among those religious types who poison everything, and he believes, or he did believe, he passed away, but he believes that Christians today do the same thing. We poison everything, just like Jesus did. These accusations linked to Jesus are unfair, and they're wrong, and they sting, and depending on the accusations, we do well to respond to them. However, the false accusations made against Jesus were not central to Jesus' trial. So what is central in Jesus' trial? Well, it's who he is. Look at verse 61 of our text. The high priest asked Jesus a question. Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Now, he wasn't supposed to directly challenge Jesus, but this does get at the issue. And Jesus responded, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Both the high priest and and Jesus use indirect words when referring to God. The priest uses the common Jewish substitute, the blessed. Jesus uses the word power. The Jews did not speak the very name of God. They referred to him indirectly, so that's what's happening there. But in essence, the high priest is asking Jesus if he's the Son of God. Now, I want to ask you a question. When does Jesus speak at this council meeting? And he's there the whole time. When does he speak? He didn't speak out when the council was unjust, and he had multiple opportunities to do so. And this was not because Jesus is indifferent to injustice. Jesus is deeply opposed to injustice. Remember his condemnation of the Pharisees for encouraging the people to financially neglect their parents, or how he welcomed the little children at a time when children were considered nothing. They were insignificant. They are unimportant. I don't even want to see you around. But Jesus was not, uh, injustice was not central to his trial. He did not speak out when the accusations were made against him. And this was not because Jesus was unable to answer his accusers. He answered the scribes when they accused him of being in league with the devil back in Mark chapter 3. And it was not because the accusation should be ignored. 
It's because they were not central to his trial. Mark tells us in verse 61 that Jesus was silent and he made no answer. So when does Jesus speak at his trial? It's when the high priest asked him if he was the son of God. That is what is central in Jesus' trial, and that is when Jesus speaks. That's important in this story. It's the moment when Jesus speaks out. Jesus answered the question, Are you the Son of the Blessed? asked the priest. I am, said Jesus. Now, his answer may sound like a simple subject predicate sentence to us. I am. But to the Jews, it was a whole lot more than that. Jesus used the divine name of God, I am who I am. Remember Moses back at the burning bush? That's where God appeared and identified himself to Moses at the burning bush as I am who I am. And we can be sure that Jesus was heard as saying as much as saying, identifying himself as God, by the way the high priest reacted. So we might think, well, no way, that's just an I am. I mean, there there, there are these, these basic simple sentences in that language, so maybe that's all it is, but we get reinforced in our understanding of it being uh, referencing the divine uh, nature because of how the high priest reacted. What did he do? He tore his clothes, and that was a sign in the day that he had heard blasphemy about God. And the high priest called Jesus' answer blasphemy. Jesus' answer is twofold. I'm not going to belabor it, but first, he positively affirms that he's the Son of God. And second, Jesus declares that he is the Messiah who will be vindicated and come as their judge. Isn't that interesting? Here, he's being judged, and he turns it around on them and says that he will be vindicated. Yes, he will be put to death, but he will be vindicated, and he will come again and be their judge. Who Jesus is, is central to his trial. It's easy for us to make other things central in the trial of Jesus. Today, we, as I said, <clears throat> Jesus is still put on trial. We get caught up in that, uh, where we are put on trial with Jesus, and so we might make other things more central. Politics is one, is a common one. The world is questioning and challenging who Jesus is, and then we shift the focus to promoting a political party or a certain candidate in the election. It's not that Christians who deny this, who deny, it's not that Christians deny that Jesus is the Son of God. It's that in the trial of Jesus, it looks to the world, when we do that, it looks to the world like what we think is most central is politics, not who Jesus is. Another one in the trial of Jesus is morality. We can make certain moral issues central in the trial of Jesus. Morality, how we live our lives, is indispensable to Christianity. If we follow Jesus, we will seek to live according to the word of God and the moral order that God creates for us. And this, is, this comes out of our epistle lesson from Romans. It refers to Jesus as the son whom God sent and Jesus Christ sets us free from the law of sin and death so that we might live according to the spirit and not the flesh. But it's crucial to understand that how we live follows from who Jesus is and what he did. So our morality, our Christian morality and all, is secondary to who Jesus is. Morality and the Christian life depend on who Jesus is. So what is central in the trial of Jesus is that he is the son of God and the savior of the world, not morality. 
Once again, we might make some other matter of theology central to the, in the trial of Jesus, like predestination. That's an important doctrine in Reformed churches, and it attracts a lot of attention. But it should not be central in the trial of Jesus. This can be seen with our membership vows. Not one of them asks if you affirm the doctrine of predestination. People come to the church, sometimes they're, they, they want to know, they're curious about joining, and, and I, uh, you know, because they know we have the Westminster Confession of Faith, we have all this doctrine, we talk about all this, and so they, do they have to believe all those things? Do I have to believe in infant baptism? Do I have to believe in this and that? And I tell them, well, that's what we teach here. If you think we're wrong about that, like it's sinful, then don't come here, <laughs> because we do teach it. But you don't have to believe that to be able to be a member here. And, and as long as you're willing to, to be a part, under the teaching, you can grow, and, and, uh, and that's, that's fine. What do our membership vows require? Well, they require you to affirm that Jesus Christ is God the Son in relationship to the Father and the Holy Spirit, and that Jesus is the Savior of the world from its sin as attested in Scripture. So that's, that's the nutshell. That's the, or that's the nut in the, the nutshell. That's what it's all about. And our vows pinpoint that which is great. That's what they should be doing because that's what's central in the trial of Jesus. What's central to our faith and in our testimony to the world is Jesus, the Son of God, who is the Messiah who dies for us. We've got to keep that at the center and then everything else is important. It's necessary. We've got to talk about it, but it flows from that. There were many Christian symbols in the early church. It's fun to go look at the early church and all the symbols they had. One of them was the ichthus. I just saw it the other day on the back of a car, except they put a little cross where the eye of the fish is. But on uh, the ichthus was the symbol of a fish, and ichthus means fish in Greek. So if you want to run around, you Klaus children, if you want to run around and impress your friends, you can call a fish an ichthus, and, and they'll go, what? And tell them, oh, that's just fish in Greek. Inside the Christian ichthus were five Greek letters that spelled out the Greek word ichthus. And each letter stood for something. Now in English, it's, it's not a one-to-one correspondence. So in English, we have a couple of those letters or two letters when it's just one in Greek. But each one of these letters stood for something. The first, the eta, the first letter is the first letter in the Greek name for Jesus. The word Jesus in Greek starts with an eta. The second, the chi, was the first letter in the Greek word Christ. The third, the theta, was the first letter in the Greek word God. The fourth, the upsilon, was the first letter in the Greek word son. And the fifth, the sigma, was the first letter in the Greek word savior. So, if you put it all together, inside the symbol of the fish was the word ichthus, which stood for Jesus Christ, God, Son, Savior. And that's what's central in the trial of Jesus. May we join our Lord's confession and affirm that Jesus is God the Son who judges the world and saves us from our sin. Let us pray. Almighty and everlasting God, in Jesus Christ you have revealed yourself and your salvation among the nations. Preserve his work that your church throughout the world may persevere with steadfast faith in the confession that he is God and Savior. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, we pray, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen.
Let us stand and confess our faith. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of his Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten not made, being of one substance with the Father, through whom all things were made, who for us and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man, and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried, and the third day he rose again according to the scriptures and ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. And he shall come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. The Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. And we believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins. And we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Our hymn as we come to the Lord's table is number 610, Take Up Your Cross, the Savior Said.
last Sunday of the month, we collect our diaconal offering. The ushers, please come forward to collect that offering. food for those who fear him. He remembers his covenant forever. And how much more true is that in Jesus Christ? According to the Lord's institution of this meal, this bread and cup is set apart from a common use to this holy use, this use, the sacred use in worship. Our Lord on the night of his arrest took the bread and blessed God. He broke it and gave it to the disciples in the same he did with the cup. We offer our thanksgiving to the Lord and we receive his nourishment for our new life with confidence in the promise of Christ who said, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. We receive this meal hearing the promise of Christ ringing in our ears. It is the Lord's table. He invites us to feast with him. Those who come to this holy meal promise to trust and love and obey him as the Lord of every realm of life and to live in love and concern for each other. So there's a reciprocity going on, you might say, or a communion uh, back and forth going on, where Christ uh, gives us his promise. He um, assures us that, we, um, that he does take us as his own, that we belong to him, and that he blesses us. And then we, in return, are to promise that we will seek to live in love and concern for uh, each other, for our neighbors, and we are to obey Christ. It's my privilege as Christ's minister to invite all who have been baptized to publicly profess their faith in Jesus Christ and our communicant members of a Christian church to come to this, his table. Join with me now in giving thanks to God for his salvation and our new life uh, that come in Jesus Christ. The Lord be with you. And also with you. Lift up your hearts. And lift them up to the Lord. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is right to give him thanks and praise. We do give you thanks, Almighty God, for you have created us in your image. You've created a world full of good things. But most of all, you've sent your beloved Son, who, though he is God and is equal with you, became a man and lived among us as the servant of our salvation. 
He was obedient even to die on the cross so that we might pass from death to life. He was put to death for our trespasses and raised for our justification. And therefore, with all of heaven, as we read in the book of Revelation, we praise your great and glorious name, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God of hosts, heaven and earth are full of the majesty of your glory. Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And now we pray that you would consecrate this bread and cup so that our eating of this bread and drinking of this cup may be for us a participation in the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. For we do profess our faith with the church that Christ has died, and Christ has risen, and Christ will come again. We thank you that even as there is one bread and one cup, so the church is one, and together with all your holy people we have been united to Christ. We praise you and glorify you forever, Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom all good things come, and who has blessed us with the life-giving Spirit. To you is all the honor and glory along with the Father and the Holy Spirit. We offer our thanksgiving with one voice, and we say together, Amen. The Lord Jesus Christ took the bread, and after giving thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup, saying, the cup, This cup is the cup of the new covenant, sealed in my blood, shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. As often as you drink it, do this in remembrance of me.
Jesus said, Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Take and eat this bread and drink this cup and remember Christ's body and blood given for you. Receive it with faith and thanksgiving. Take and eat and drink. Let us pray. Father of all, we give you thanks and praise that when we still were far off from you, you met us in your Son and you brought us home through him. Dying and living, he bore our sin, gave us grace and opened the gate of glory. May we who share Christ's body live his risen life. We who drink his cup show others the true vine. We whom the Spirit lights give light to the world. Keep us firm in the hope that you have set before us, so that we and all your children may be free. And the whole world live to praise your name. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Our final hymn is number 94, How Firm a Foundation.
God our Father, who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope, encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good word and deed. And the blessing of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit be upon you all now and forever. Amen. few announcements. Uh, first off, um, we found out this morning that <clears throat> Leah's mother, Judy, passed away. I know Jeff had prayed for uh, her in the pastoral prayer this morning, but we would ask all the congregation to be in prayer for uh, Leah and her family as they go through this at this point in time. Um, also, uh, uh, to the things for the church, uh, we will uh, be uh, completing our study on the Reformed tradition today. It'll be the last in that series. Um, next week we will have uh, our fellowship meal, and then the week after that, then we'll be starting looking at uh, Luther's Christmas book, and we'll start uh, preparing our ourselves for uh, Christmas uh, by going through that. And then uh, after the first of the year, we'll start our study on um, the uh, Dana Ortland book, um, Gentle and Lowly. I had an S, starting with an S there, but it was, no, Gentle and Lowly is the book that we'll be starting on uh, in January 1st. There are two copies available uh, on the book table. I checked this morning. Uh, if you would like a copy, there are two conditions. We would ask that you uh, would uh, donate uh, the cost of the book to the um, to the church. It's eleven dollars for that, um, but that isn't obligatory. What is obligatory is if you take the book, you got to be here. Yeah, yeah. So uh, what we're expecting that to be a very um, good uh, study. It's a very. I've read the book. I, I found it. I think it's a wonderful book. It's very pastoral and helpful for those that are. Um, uh, in their relationship with Christ and understanding the humility and love that Christ has for his people, I just would encourage you to uh, consider picking up the book and obligating yourself to be here once we start the study. Uh, keep in mind also the Thursday uh, Bible study. And I think that's it by way of announcement. Am I missing anything? Um, I need to see Paul and Tobias's I think, and Alan in the back when we're done. Real quick. You're in trouble now. Okay, well, let's go ahead and dismiss, and then we'll, we'll have a time of fellowship, and then we'll move to our time of CE. Thank you. Yeah.